0: Hello and welcome to Red's Business and Technology Podcast. I'm your host, Jackson Barnes. I'm your co host, Brad Ferris. And today we sat down with David Burkett, who's the Chief Growth Officer from Working Mouse, speaking everything software development. In this episode, we cover off what to do when considering custom software development, what not to do when considering custom software development. Over to you, Brad. What, did you, what were some key takeaways you got from the chat?
1: Yeah, I think it was really good. I'd never met um, Dave before. Um, So it was a really good open conversation. I thought he was really open with his advice. And probably the key takeaways I got out of that is how important it is to define the problem you are trying to solve before you go down uh, down the path on a software project. Um, Once you've defined that problem... Also, how important it is to then get the business case right before you go forward because you can really burn a lot of cash really quickly um, if you don't do kind of the proper planning. And I think that's something that we instill in all of our projects. Um, Don't shortcut things because if you do, it can quite often end up costing you more in the long run. So Mm. I I thought it was really good. I really enjoyed meeting him and um, um, potentially working with him in the future. That's a good takeaways. I think the um
0: has to be a real business case for it. That's something I really, really took yeah. away. Let's jump over. Yeah. Thanks, thanks David, for coming in. Really, really appreciate it. Um, if we can start with maybe an introduction to your background before we jump into working mouse, it's probably a good place to start.
2: Yeah, fantastic. Thanks, Jackson, and thanks, Brad. And uh thanks to Red for having me along. Really appreciate being here. Uh so introduction to my background. Um, so firstly, I'm not a software developer. Um, I would gauge myself as someone that knows enough to be dangerous um, and uh, I've got a lot of project experience. So uh, my background um, before working mouse was working in B2C for Apple. Uh, Previously Mm. also did my own software development technology startup uh, back in about 2012. That involved a trip to China, Chinese software developers illegally mapping applications in China which is a whole other story. Um, and a massive failure of an application that we launched. Um, and a lot of learnings.
0: Wow. Yeah. So you learn what not to do. Yes, and exactly. Then, and, and then you uh, joined uh, Working Mouse.
2: Yeah, brought those learnings in.
0: Yeah, nice. So do you want to touch on Working Mouse? Um, we had a little preamble around... 70 people in the organization, software development. But do you want to tell the Working Mouse story, um, a Brisbane based success story like Red, um, just around the corner, a couple of suburbs. But yeah. how did it start and uh, maybe the foundations and where it is now?
2: Yeah, lovely, lovely. Uh, so Working Mouse started uh, out of uh, the founder, my business partner, Dr. Eben Scott's PhD. So Eben was actually working back in the UK uh, approximately about, would have been 12, 15 years ago. Um, contracting as a developer um, for uh, Master, Visa, a heap of big projects, coming into the office and doing the same thing every day and getting paid an extraordinary amount to do that. Um, As good as that was, he thought there's got to be a better way to do this. So Evan previously had a Master's in Artificial Intelligence and Machine Learning from QUT. Um, So he came back to Australia um, and went to UQ and did his PhD at UQ in Model-Driven Software Engineering. Uh, out of that, Eben's PhD came out, uh, MD SaaS. Um, so Model-Driven Software Engineering as a Service. Um, and uh, he went and pitched that to a number of investors. And they said, we've got no idea what you're talking <laughs> about, mate.
0: Yeah, I need you to go slow <laughs> on that one, actually, Dave. I, I didn't keep up, then I'll be, Brad.
2: <laughs> and they uh, so said, go, go start a business. So Eben started working. Mouse said, use the technology that you're talking about to start building some projects and some products um, and take it from there. So that's how Working Mouse started. Um, when um, I and the name, the name, or that or are, we, are we coming to that? Yeah, or the name was actually um, was Working Mouse was a previous incarnation um, within Brisbane. Um, it was a previously a development agency before that. So um, he actually purchased the PTYT from oh, his okay. brother who owned it at the time, um, and that's how we got the name Working so Mouse. Just- yeah, it was just about of convenience. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a PTYT. We'll pick that up. Yeah, That's boring,
0: right. Dave. You should make up a big fancy story about convenience yeah, no, because we do
2: that. Five thousand clicks a minute. I don't know. Um, <laughs> so um, yeah, so Evan started the business up um, and started working on projects, um, and um, we we they got to about three three or four different customers. Then they suddenly lost two or three um, when the first GFC hit, um, and went uh, right. We're a bunch of nerds sitting in an office. We don't have anyone kind of out there um, spooking the business, and which is uh, the point that I became involved in the business and I kind of head up the growth team. Um, so since then for Working Mouse, um, we've grown to yeah approximately 70 and uh, 10 delivery teams. Uh, we've been quite lucky. Um, we've had some good contracts. So we've built the non-materiel and now material procurement platforms for the Department of Defence. Um, wow. And we're now working with customers like Hitachi on their automated haulage system for their automated vehicles, uh, Blue Scope Steel, and a number of other kind of large clients. Um, in regards to the technology and the PhD, we um, have kept on developing that. And we, we realized about two years in that we were building a service business and not uh, a technology business. So we decided at that point, we made a very conscious decision to split the technology business and the, the services business apart. So at that point we founded CodeBots, uh, which is our technology service business. So we actually run two businesses within the group. Uh, we've got the CodeBots technology, um, which we've been R&Ding for about 10 years now, um, and is getting fairly sophisticated. Um, and then we've also got Working Mouse, which has kind of been going from strength to strength on project. So working mouse
1: is services and Codebots is IP effectively? Exactly, yeah, that's it.
2: So Codebots is, I would describe it as a software development platform as a service for developers.
1: Yeah, right. And do you, is, are you selling that? Yeah. Yeah, cool. And yeah. do you white label it or it's Codebots
2: as so, the product in the market? or So how, how would I describe the product? Yeah. So Codebots is a model-driven engineering platform as a service. And what that enables us to do is to effectively train a bot on something that we write by hand. So whenever we write a piece of code, we can go, right, well, we're going to reuse this piece of code um, in the future on other projects within this tech stack. Um, if the case is yes, then we go, right, let's train the bot on that piece of code. And then we publish that to the web IDE so that can get reused from a model. So, mm-hmm. The point behind model-driven engineering is that we bring all artefacts up to be first-class artefacts. So usually with the software development, you come into a room, you whiteboard it out and then you write down the requirements and you go, yeah, that sounds really great. Um, There's our scope, there's our spec, we've got our requirements backlog, clickable clickable prototype and uh, yeah, let's go off and build that. And then that kind of gets left by the wayside and forgotten about as the project (laughs) evolves and iterates. Um, The idea is that the model is kept up to date. So the model has traditionally when we're talking about a a bot model um, with a software development bot, um, we have a uh, entity diagram which is like the attributes, the relationships on the server, um, and we can add on different behaviours that we've trained, security for access, um, and then we have a user interface diagram much like a traditional low-code development platform. But the difference is that we don't obfuscate any of the code. Um, And what that means is usually when you use Power Apps or you use something like that to kind of create an application, you don't have that control down to the code. They control that. Mm. They guard that. Mm. Um, And the developers go, well, I can get you this far, but you've got to follow their process here because they've decided to do it this way. The difference here is the developers get the code and the bot works like another developer and commits the code to the Git repository. So you can go in there and tweak it all you want. Go and tweak the code and away you go. So you can have that control at code level, at the platform level, and also within the target application that it writes.
0: Yeah it's good. It means you if you get to do something in Power Apps, you're a bit limited to what you where you, how far
2: you can go, whereas from what, what you're doing fairly unlimited. Exactly. Yeah. So like Power Apps workflows, right? You come in and Mm. go, cool, I can follow their workflows here uh, to this point. Mm. And you go, well, it doesn't quite do what I want it to do. Okay, we'll just go into the code. Mm. What percentage of the business
0: is across like the code bot versus the other side of the business?
2: The majority is still on the services side. Yep. Um, We're still finding our product market fit for how the platform works um, and kind of licensing bots that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that makes, that makes a bit of sense. Yeah. So, what's Working Mass point of difference in the market from other software development companies? In yeah,
2: Australia?
0: probably the code bots. Yep. Um, So
2: <laughs> obviously, you use it internally. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, right, yeah, cool. yeah, yeah. We, it's that's your secret source. Secret yeah. source day to day. That's what we use. Yep. Um, yeah. The point of difference is that we can use that. So we are up to what I would call our third generation bots with code bots. Um, so we've got third-gen bots. We've got two bots on there that are public bots. Mm. So uh, one is we call C-sharp bot, which you guys will be quite familiar with, I'm sure, in regards to that's Microsoft's open-source technology stack. Um, and then we also have a Java Spring bot, which, Springbot, which is very similar to Google's tech stack. So it's what kind of a mix of what Facebook, Google, and um, Microsoft have open-sourced. Um, and we use those. We train the bot on those and um, we can also license them out as well. Um, right. Yeah, it gets us a fair bit of velocity out of the box. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: So what's the process of getting a piece of software developed? Say we've got one of our clients or someone approaches you and they're like, oh, hey, I need something to go and do, blah. Where do, where do they start? what so what I want to with this is want to get the most value for listeners of, of our audience, which is fairly general across technology. Um, how do you start that process?
2: Yeah, definitely. It's a great question. Um, so if you're starting from, I have a problem, that is the best place to go from, rather than I know what the solution is going to be. Um, so if we talk about software development, we are usually these days talking about product development, which is where you're bringing a piece of IP to market as software. Um, so in that case, what we do is we start with the problem. We all agree on what the problem is as part of a problem statement. Um, and then we go into scope. Now, there's lots of different ways to skin a cat when it comes to software development in, uh, you know, waterfall project approach or agile project approach, and then you've got different flavours of agile. Um, but the thing we need to do first is figure out what the solution to that problem is. So we go into a scoping process at that point um, and we have not only the developers, but also designers working alongside you to figure out what the solution to that problem is. Um, so the way that we do that is we go for a discovery process. So discovery, we go out and we interview different users, we observe what they're doing and we go, right, okay, well, we believe that this is going to be the correct solution. We prototype that out, we test it, and then we go, yep, all right, that's gonna be the best thing to solve this problem. And then at that part of the back half of scoping, we get all of the things ready, so we, we have a, a way of working. Um, And the way of working says you can't go into development until the artifacts are ready and they meet the definition of ready. So the key artifacts, as I kind of alluded to at the start, is backlog of requirements. The backlog of requirements is the key one that the developers use throughout the project. And that's basically user stories where as a user, I want to do this to achieve this. Um, Within the the backlog of the user stories, you then have the implementation notes. So the implementation notes for the developers to go, oh yeah, that's how we're gonna implement this. But the key thing, and this is the big thing for customers, is to understand the user acceptance testing and user acceptance criteria. So user acceptance criteria. You do that at the the start when you're scoping? Yeah, we have that all scoped out. um, And user acceptance criteria enables the customer to then tick off when the developers have done it correctly. And if you don't have that, that's where you can fall into some kind of big problems. Mm. So there's a lot to unpack in that, <laughs> in that little
1: bit there. So first of all, the so your discovery process up up front. Mm. Do you do that as a kind of as a one-off separate engagement to go like cool like you've come to us, you've got a problem you want to solve you might not have any clue how much is it going to cost or how much effort's involved on both sides. Yeah. Um, will you do that as a kind of call? Well, we'll we'll spend a week or however long. We'll do discovery. It will require this much time. We price that separately. After that, we'll have a bit more information to go into um, the discussion around, okay, how much work is this going to be? How long is it, how, what's it going to cost? The technologies, all that kind of stuff. Is that how it
2: works generally? Yeah, definitely. Um, so it's, it's separate from development, obviously. But the key thing is having the same team do the scope that's going to do the build. If you have a different team doing the scope and then they hand that over to a new team, you as the customer have explained your domain that you're the expert in mm. and then you have to re-explain that again as to why those decisions were made during scope. So it's beneficial to have the same team scoping it and not just a designer. You've got to make sure that you've got the developers in there so they can go and de-risk and tech spike the different elements of that. The, the way I like to explain software development, especially – these days if you're making a web app or you're making a mobile app or something like that is you don't have control of the technologies and this is what makes it so complex. It's like you're building a bridge and you don't have control of the land on either side of where you're trying to build the (laughs) bridge between and you're trying to engineer it as perfectly as possible and they change the height over there, they release an update over here, things are moving so fast. There's too many unknown unknowns. It's literally never-ending software. Exactly. Yeah, it's an iterative process, right? Yep. Software is never done. You you build it to a point to solve a problem, and you can keep building. You can keep building. You can keep building. Yeah,
0: like min- minimal.
2: What do they say? Minimum using
0: like using usable... minimal viable products. Yeah, yeah that's shortest path to important. value. There's yep. there's
2: loads of different things you can say, but yeah, generally
0: the approach you do is you get to the minimum viable product, and and then enhance. It's like a phase two, three after that.
2: Yeah, exactly. So the the process is that we'll we'll scope out the build one or the MVP. Um, we will then estimate that, um, we'll agree upon that estimation um, and then we, we proceed into development for that time and at the end release to production and then we move it over to our DevOps team and DevOps the DevOps guys provide support. So if you want to make enhancements or you want to lodge bugs and things like that and get it resolved, yeah. you can go ahead and do that via like a level two service desk. So
1: are you guys, um, are you kind of full stack service in that regard? Like you'll do the design, the UX, UI... Yeah, DevOps, Dev, exactly. Whole, yeah, keep,
2: completely you, cross-functional software development, and too. the
1: consultants to do the discovery work, all that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, okay, yeah.
2: Cool. And we we get the developers to do the discovery work alongside the designers, because um, they're the ones that going to have to build it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I want to go a bit more into like the, the elephant in the room here around pricing because I feel like it's really a common, maybe misconception or maybe just how it is around people going, oh, yeah, we need this but we don't want to go to a software developer because it would have cost so much ridiculous amount of money to get this stuff built. And you no doubt would get that, um, I guess, challenge a lot of the time when you first have that initial conversation and you're trying to qualify whether it's going to be worth or if they're going to have like, the budget to get this across the line. How do you, I, I guess combat that and do, is, that, is that something that you get, um, like that scenario happens a lot?
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, so the, the first thing is there needs to be a good business case. The business case to build a product or a custom piece of software needs to be very strong. And it's it's often hard to find that strong business case. Um, so if, if the, when I say the business case, and I mean why would the business case not be there? The business case would probably not be there if you don't actually need to own the IP and develop your own product. So for example, if you can find something off the shelf, like a COT solution, so custom off the shelf solution, um, and then utilize that or white label that, um, and you're only using it to increase your, sorry, lower your costs because it's saving you a certain amount of time, why would you need to develop that as a piece of software if you're not gonna license it to other people? Um, So look in the market first, see what there is, um, and then, if you can't find something and the business case is strong, uh, come with us. So I've got a good example of that. Um we built, if you guys have ever been to Morden Ireland and gone on the MyCat ferry, mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's the four by four ferry that goes out from Port okay, of Brisbane. Yeah. So Liz came to us about six years ago um, and she said, dave, there's there's no one in market that'll enable me to build a ferry booking system that has variable pricing or dynamic pricing so they can price based on demand. And we said, sure, we can build you um, a ferry booking system and we can do that based on demand. That's absolutely fine because there was no one else in the market that could do that. Um, We built the product and obviously software development when it comes to cost has a really large capex. Mm -hmm. It's a significant amount to invest up front, which is why there needs to be a strong business case. Mm. Um, But once you've got that, you're not then paying the license fees um, per seat or anything like that. So the use case with Liz um, was that, um, yes, there was a large CapEx, but once she depreciated the software, the return she made was tenfold. So she not only made a return on the fact that she was able to um, optimise her revenue through dynamic pricing, um, but on top of that as well, because we had the booking platform, um, they d- they moved from going from managing their business via telephone calls and a, a service number, um to everything being on the booking platform. So that saved her about 200K in <coughs> salaries per annum. You're
0: yeah, right, so you do a full ROI on, before you even engage uh, past the initial scope, you would do an
2: ROI case back to the client of going go, moving forward. We would have that full discussion okay. and we'd do as much investigation as we can to make sure it's worth actually proceeding forwards.
1: Yeah. So yeah, then I was gonna ask, so in the scope of your service, when the client comes to you, like in that example, and she says, I can't find anything, I don't know, will your team actually as part of discovery or whatever you wanna call that initial engagement, Actually, go out to market and go. Well, actually, there's something here. You've paid us X amount, and we've done discovery. But actually, you should probably look over here. Exactly.
2: No, yes, that's, that's just, it. That's and then, yeah, then why, why? Why would we build something for someone if there's something out there that's going to solve the problem already for them? Yeah, I uh, would much rather be transparent about that and be invested with a serious business case.
0: That makes sense. And so, what about the pricing of ongoing? So, say there's a large uh, investment you said for building something completely yeah. custom. What about ongoing? Is there there like fees to maintain and patch um, those applications
2: or how does that work? Yeah, definitely. So as we said before, software is never done. Mm. So there's a couple of different fees that you need to take into account. So firstly, you've got your hosting fee. So cloud hosting these days, we're agnostic. We don't care where where you deploy it. You can deploy it on-prem if you've got the capability or you can deploy it um, in a managed environment um, such as Azure or AWS or if your IT service provider has that sophistication, they can manage the deployment for you as well, right? So we usually say, sign up to your cloud provider and we do the deployment, we manage the, we can manage the deployment through the DevOps guys there. And then you've just got to pay your usage fee to uh, Microsoft Azure or Amazon AWS. So that's that kind of hosting. Um, on top of that as well, um, you need a retainer in there for the support desk and then access. So the big question is, well, how much if is software going to cost me on a per annum basis um, to kind of support? And we usually say the best thing to do is to take a budget of the build price between five to 10% of the build price per annum and factor that in for support enhancements. Mm. So if you've got that budget there, you're able to always go, yep, yeah, okay, we know it's gonna be 10% per annum. So if it's a 300K build, let's allocate 30K per annum to do enhancements and bugs. On top of that as well, software is always changing. So um, there'll be a new release of the open source technology. Um, what we'll actually do is, we'll we, within the technology set we use with CodeBots, um, we'll keep an eye on that, and then we'll go right. Let's update CodeBots to the latest version of React or something like that, which is a client-side language. How
0: do you actually? How does so that so that changes? How does your customer know that cost is coming, or do you not charge for that?
2: We, so what we do is we update the bot, and we we wear that, mm. um, and then we go right. We've gone from you know React. 16, 17 to 18, which has just come out. Um, And uh, we'll then update that on the bot and then we'll tell the customers, hey, we've updated our bot to this. Um, Did you want to update your application to the latest version? Yep, this is the estimation. And we'll give them a report as to, hey, this is the pros and cons of moving to React 17 to 18. This is what you're gonna get out of it. So it's like, these are the security updates and things like that. And then it's just the labor for us to go, yep, update that application to the latest version of the bot. So the big thing with that is you then don't end up in a situation where you're on a legacy version when it happened in three to five years that is no longer secure and no longer patched. Mm. So your your technology is always on the latest and greatest and you don't slip behind. Mm. Uh, We've had customers previously that have had custom builds done for them um, and it was on Angular 1 Uh, and there was no migration pathway to Angular 2 and so on and so forth, which is a Google client side language. Um, so we had to rebuild the whole product for them, millions of dollars. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so that legacy creep in patching is super important as well. So
1: I, I imagine that conversation is also part of that discovery or, or at least maybe just post-discovery when you're working out, all right, well, what's the technology stack to kind of future-proof this? To an extent, there's always going to be the maintenance and in the, in the development, but I imagine when you're choosing that technology, um, and I guess where I'm going with that is that probably why it's important – to get the right team that can have that conversation up front and not just go down a path and you end up after you've sunk however much money into a project actually, well, I'm stuck with this thing that I can't do anything with and then I end up doing the project twice because i got to go to someone who knows what they're doing. Yeah,
2: and the the biggest thing (laughs) as well is that because it's changing so frequently, um, there's always a new technology coming out that developers want to play with. (laughs) Yeah, Um, And it's making sure that you're not going with – you, you know, the new X, Y, Z technology that is really popular today, but in two years time, no one supports it. Um, so the way that we do that, and the way we decided our tech, our core technology stack, so when someone comes to us and says, can you build this? We say, yeah, this is the technology that we use, is we looked at adoption amongst developers as a worldwide community. So these technologies, they're all open source, they all have communities. Um, so C Sharp, GraphQL, which is the API layer, and React is the client-side layer for our C-sharp bot. They are the most commonly used technologies throughout the world. So what that means is that you're not going to find a lack of developers that can support that. It's not some weird, obscure language um, that you're going to go, okay, this seems great at the time, but then you can't get anyone to support that in five years' time.
0: Mm, I do want to touch on actually the, uh, finding talent because going to 70 people is big. But before we do that, the... You touch I've seen some horror stories of people who get like a one man band developer or something on the side to go and develop something for them. They then one year later they leave, or if it's a mm. director of business who develops mm. something then they run away. There's there's I've heard a lot of horror stories over the years. What are some of the mistakes that you've run into um, of like a what not to do when looking for a software that developer? How
1: much button?
2: time do we have, Jackson? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> give me the give me the three, two minute version. Like I said, it's the wild west, right? So yeah. there's minefields everywhere. Yep. Um, it's it's a tricky one. Some of the core mistakes um, are, yeah, developing solo um, and then not having documentation. Not having documentation is probably the biggest one. Mm. So um, it's an inherent problem because everyone just wants to be building, especially in software development. I want to do the cool stuff. I want to build the stuff. Um, what I don't want to do is write the tests for what I've built and then write the documentation for what I've built so someone can interpret that and understand that in the future. Um, and that's a big one. Mm. Um, So yeah, okay, you can go to a software development agency and they could say, yeah, we can get this done in X weeks and compared to us, that would be significantly less from our estimations. And the reason that is, is that we don't only estimate to build it, we estimate the time to test it and put the automated tests in place and then we estimate the time to actually document it. Mm. So you're not only getting the application like I said at the start, the, the other artifacts are just as important as the source code. So the documentation and the tests are just as important.
0: Yeah, we see that on a small scale, stat scale here on yeah. uh, IT, right? Where we inherit a network, for example, and there's no documentation on anything we're like oh I'm gonna go and look at full discovery again of what's going on if it was with a smaller uh, managed service provider or one man band or something uh, we've run into the same thing but I imagine with software it would be a bit harder to unbake uh, and, and learn cool. what other things like have you a like, top mistakes have you come across
2: um, that's probably been the biggest one mm-hmm. um, and the the other ones um, are as I we alluded to before is not patching and modernizing so letting it kind of drift into legacy um, where it kind of becomes too hard and you can't touch it at that
1: point. But but even before that, you know, something that I've seen time and time again and it's both for software, it's both for what we do is that people don't understand what's involved, right? So they'll go to Working Mouse, they'll come to Red, then they'll go to whoever. Software, I've seen it several times where people just, they'll get an offshore quote, Mm. right? And then they go, whoa, whoa, well, hang on. I'll just use some numbers, $100 over here, $20 over here, like what's the difference? And the difference is all the things you just described. Um, Yeah, it's quality. The quality of the documentation, the quality of the testing, the automated testing, um, things like that. So I I actually find that um, quite a big problem is trying to articulate that quality to someone who doesn't really understand the process and getting that across. But I've seen – a handful, a few, yeah, of software projects that they end up – yep, they go with the $20 option and you just get down a path. So they, 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 they lose out because they don't get the product to market. Somebody might also come. They lose out because what they get actually doesn't work anyway. And if it's an established brand, it could actually hurt your brand because you put out a dud. And what you end up doing anyway is just blowing that twenty grand and going to have to spend the 100 the anyway or whatever the numbers are, hmm. um, getting it redone properly. So. Yeah. Um I have seen that many many times unfortunately.
2: Yeah, that's it. There's the the complication when you're going offshore um is that the the communication, the culture, and then you have to kind of work asynchronously because they're usually in a different time zone and um you have no idea and control over quality. Yeah. Um and you can't come sit in a meeting room, whiteboard something out, ensure they understand. That's a big thing. But that has a place though like offshoring um, a mobile app development when it's very high risk and you want to just test whether that's going to be a market fit there, um, go for it. Um, Makes sense. You can
0: rush to market with something, do a proof of concept with that and then maybe circle back to an organisation like Working Mass, is that right?
2: Yeah, but it's all based on the use case, right? If you you go and build something overseas, um, you can't then expect to licence that into a government department in Australia because it's not going to match the quality standards.
1: I think at, at least it needs to be... There's some examples and it depends on the technical capability of the business that, that wants to get something done. But that hybrid model, if you're really going for, for for cost, and again, probably for the prototyping or a small project, but I guess the message I'm trying to say is like, you kind of get what you pay for. Totally. And um, just to be aware for listeners that – you know, there's time, there's are the smart people that work on these things and it is actually quite complicated behind the scenes, especially to get it right because it's very abstract. There's no black and white in this stuff.
2: Yes, exactly.
0: I wanted to touch on um, a cybersecurity side because I mean, we're we big be on cybersecurity at Red. Yeah, definitely. one of the, the core functions we do and with software development, you know, you, you're putting your applications on many different environments hosted wherever How do, and I imagine... Or well, 2 pronged question. First, you probably have you had like a increase recently around people asking you cybersecurity questions with everything going on in the market, and then B, how do you, how do you work as working mouse combat those concerns people might have?
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, so we've definitely seen an increase from government. Okay. Um, so government very very restrictive in regards to um, your qualifications. So the big one um, that the government wants to see is ISA twenty seven thousand and one. And they want to see that chick. They want to know you've been accredited. Um, and we're on that journey. We're not there yet. Yep. And there's not many people that have completed that journey um, in Australia. So it's a hard one to, to keep up with um, unless you're kind of a tier one provider you're a Fujitsu or someone like that. Um, so th- that's the the first one from, from that perspective. So how we get around that is we partner with a tier one provider. So we've got a number of different tier one provider partnerships. Right. So if you're a government agency and you want to use a local SME, um, like working mouse to develop your product or your software, um, we can partner up between someone like Fujitsu and ourselves. They can provide the ISO 27001 product management um, and we can then do the development work. That's cool. In regards to our private clients, how do our private clients know that we're meeting security standards? Mm. Um, and there is a lot to it as well, um, not only on kind of the the database level, um, the hosting, the, the application – Um, And we're very transparent about that. There is a way um, in which you can get things tested fairly easily. So there's a number of different providers around Brisbane and Australia um, that will do third-party penetration testing. Um, And we've had a number of our clients go to the get it penetration tested um, to make sure that what we're creating for them is nice and secure um, and the deployment is secure. They can't inject any SQL or anything like that. And we're meeting those standards. How many of your clients
0: get penetration testing done? Um, like it's like half or all or,
2: no, or I'd say probably more? probably four in the last two years. Yeah. Okay. Um, so not it's not a huge amount. There's a lot of trust there in the relationship. They know that we're at equality um, in terms of standards that we follow to keep up with security as well. So um, we develop to the OWASP Top Ten, um, mm-hmm. which is basically the top ten things you can do to protect software. Um, and if you are following the OWASP Top Ten, you're pretty much covered. So, so what was that? For? Is that a framework? Yeah, it's a it's a international standard um, and framework for security. And it's OWASP. Yep, OWASP Top Ten. Okay.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that would definitely. I can imagine how that would be a huge concern recently from government. You know, like critical infrastructure stuff that's changing around, and obviously the opters and things that have happened recently. So, no doubt you get that question a lot. So, it's good that you have that as a a front of mind topic. The other thing I want to touch on was talent. Like it's, mm. we've got um pretty big culture here at Red so trying to keep our engineers happy and that yeah. kind of thing. Software developers are probably similar but um, or maybe even harder to find, uh, especially with like a lot of experience. How do you attract and retain talent?
2: Yeah, totally. So um, there is uh, a number of different ways. Um, so the, the first way is that we're heavily involved within the local university communities. Um, So we sponsor a a number of different university groups. So UQCS, UQ Computing Society, um, and we're frequently going there and we're working alongside those. Um, What we also do is we invest in our people. Um, So in the DevOps Centre for support, um, we'll actually put undergrads on uh, before they've graduated. And we hire probably 10 to 15 per year um, to go into the DevOps Centre on a casual basis. They can come in, they can learn the ropes, learn the technology, everything like that as well. And then when they're ready and they've graduated, we can promote them to be a developer at that point once they've been exposed and have that experience. So some of the best developers and squad leads that we've had have been within the business for five to six years. And they came through that pathway um, right from the university, Mm. which is fantastic. Um, In terms of how we attract talent that's already in market, um, so we have an internal recruiter. Um, we reach out to people that we feel would be a good fit um, and then we actually put them through a four-week training program. So we put, we call it Bot Camp to learn the technology um, and learn our process um, before they're ever getting near a project uh, or a client or anything like that as well.
0: Do you do pretty vigorous testing on uh, people before you hire them? Do you get them to actually go and build something or show them stuff you've built before hiring? Yeah,
2: yeah, that's it. So there's there's a few exams um, they go through one or two exams, and they, they get build something, and they can also bring along um, a project that they've done and things like that as well. So there's, it's fairly rigorous.
0: Yeah. Okay. So it sounds like um, uh, with the cobots, and that's like consistently developing. But what other technology are you developing at Working Mouse?
2: Uh, it all depends on the client's need. So um, in terms of projects that um, we're doing, we can do IoT projects um, and hardware-based projects as well. Um, but it all depends on what's the best solution for the problem, so it's it's a hard one to say. Um, the thing is, we use the right tool um, for the situation. So, for example, um, we have previously developed um, a music platform for commercial music streaming, um, which I know you like, Brighton. I do. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> Tell me more. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, think think of it as Spotify. Um, for um, a commercial music venue. So they've got the right licence to play the music. Um, but not only that, but it also is tailored to the, the, the venue's brand. So the music's playing that matches the venue. So you, it's, it's improving upon the experience. So they were previously licensing um, a piece of software from the UK, very, very old, paying a lot for it, and they just signed some big hotel clients. Um, and they went, right, well, why are we licensing this? Um, let's build it ourselves um, and let's use that to deliver. Um, so in that case, it was a big web component. So there's a web DJ component for basically curating the playlist, setting up the venues, doing the music and the moods and everything like that. Um, but we need to get players with the music actually on premise. So the way that we did that is that we had the web app for the player. Um, we then have um, a, a local application installed uh, on the actual player on-site um, with a, another application on that. And that application um, was using a technology that could make it a desktop application. Um, so it just appeared like a native desktop application. And then there was a mobile app. So there's a mobile app um, to actually allow managers in the venue to get like the music, dislike the music, control the playlist. Oh, no, there's a kid's birthday party and explicit songs <laughs> just come on. <laughs> I'll skip that track. And they had that kind of control. So what? can we know what that is? Ah, oh, I what can't are, say
1: that one's a top secret. Yeah, okay. yeah. So it is. It, <laughs> it, it is. I'll tell a, you after. <laughs> yeah, cool. Good. Um, uh, like you must work on some cool, some cool projects, um, and you must have quite a range of clients. So, is there a typical client? Client size? You know, if somebody wanted to engage Working Mouse, is there kind of you know the project needs to be of a certain size? Do you do small projects, big projects? Yeah. What's the I don't know if there's a typical, but yeah, maybe talk about the kind of projects.
2: Yeah, so the the different groupings and categories of projects. So in terms of domain, um, so we are completely domain agnostic. Um, So we can be working in finance, we can be working in music, we can be working with mining, Um, we don't mind. Um, We are the experts in software development and we will learn the domain and the product owner and the customer usually brings that domain experience. Um, And for us to be able to solve the the problem, we have the software experience. Mm. Um, In regards to type of projects, um, just a grouping of projects, Greenfield and Brownfield. Um, So um, we can adopt both Greenfield and Brownfield. When we take on a Greenfield project, that means you're starting from fresh. It's a new problem with a new business process and we haven't done anything before. Great. Brownfield is I've my application with a single developer there's no documentation please help me Um, and understandable there's lots of people that are in that situation and we can take those on as well but it's a bit harder and um, we leverage a bit of the technology to relearn and rebuild that there's different modernization options that we have for those projects um, and it's case by case if that makes sense
1: and you mentioned iot before like do you get involved in hardware Designing we, hardware?
2: Yeah, we don't do your hardware design. We're definitely not hardware experts and we're not um, we're not experts on software, on hardware devices as well. So it's mainly integrations. So firmware? We don't do firmware. Don't do firmware. Okay. Yeah, so web software, mobile apps, that's our
1: core. Cool, so someone would come to you with a device, they'd have the firmware or those bits and pieces and you would develop the front end effectively for that?
2: Yeah, exactly. So like... Um, Another example of one is there is a um, steel manufacturer in Australia um, and they have a paint production line and it comes out on a big reel and if there is a a defect on that line, each reel is worth about $200,000. So how do they know if there's a defect if they're only testing the end of the line and it's right in the middle of the line? Um, So we've built them a product that enables the image to be captured of every metre of that line and then they can go back and review it. So when a customer says, oh, there's a dent in this, we can go back and go, no, there's actually, there was no dent in that. Or they can observe a fault on the line immediately. And that's linked up on a local on-prem piece of hardware um, and there's cameras. So they're the experts in that and linking up with the PLCs. They purchase the cameras um, and they're in control of the cameras, we created the software to talk to the cameras. So we, we took the camera's firmware and we were integrated with the camera's SDK and its firmware. So are
1: you doing um, AI and image recognition and
2: those kinds of projects? Yes. Uh, we do a fair few kind of machine learning and AI projects. We've done some in finance um, and we've also done some in machine vision as well. Um, and It's amazing what you can do. I, I totally agree with why Tesla is going down the machine vision route.
1: Yeah, we've 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 looked at some things in the past, and um, it is amazing what you can do. So, and it's it's such a cool space. Um, you must you must see you must see some crazy ideas come across the table as well. Some crazy business cases that you're like, I really want to prove this. Do you
0: have <laughs> to um, do you have to bring people down to reality sometimes. You someone comes with a wacky idea, you're like, that's just no, that's not going to work.
2: Yeah, <laughs> um, there's there's a, there's a few a week. Oh, really? Um, it's like, okay. um, the, it's, it's difficult. I mean, you can do so much with software, but it's process automation and there needs to be a process behind it for you to build. Um, and there's always lots of ideas of the next Uber of or anything like that. Yep. Uh, we used to joke um, within the company that we'd never tell Uber drivers that we were a software development agency. Oh. Um, and because you go, oh yeah, I've got an idea for an app." Luckily these days, you can because they just want to talk about that crypto <laughs> um, which is fantastic yeah
0: but one thing I wanted to bring up um, I think there's an, uh, maybe it's just me I think the increasing demand of this the question right now in the market right now so say say there's someone out there who needs something developed and they're looking at do I hire a developer internally as a business or do I outsource to an organisation like Working Mouse I think I come across that a lot I um, don't know if you have. What are some, some takeaways and things that you would say just consider this if you're looking at getting someone internally versus outsourcing?
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, it's a difficult one. Mm. Um, it, it all depends on, again, the business case and where they want to go with it. Um, so, uh, if, you, if the consideration to take into place, if you're going to create your own development team, um, is that um, a single software developer. It's probably not the best way to go about it because they'll just build it. You won't have your documentation, you won't have your testing, you won't have your quality. So you need at least two software developers to be able to peer review. And then you need someone who understands the process and understands what the quality needs to be um, to be able to actually um, make sure that they're doing the right thing. So you need someone to manage them. You need a squad lead um, to follow an agile style. Um, And then you also need someone who's the product owner to direct the team. So before you know it, you've kind of built out a few different roles there. Um, And then you need the process for them to follow. You need to agree on a tech stack. um, And you also need to make sure that there's a certain level of experience within that team. Um, So one of the biggest things I love and works so well within our organisation is that because we've got 70 people... Someone's done it in some yep. form somewhere, and they can share that knowledge. And they're not just working within a silo. That's really good. Um, now, can do they want to? Do we want them to carry on with us forever? We're completely open to them creating their own team. So we've had about four customers um, who have previously created a product with us, and then we've helped them train up a team. And they've taken that team and they're continuing to develop it as a product as well.
1: I think that's a good point. Like there's multiple skill sets. I mean for what we do, for what you do, there's multiple skill sets that are required to get you to that end result. It's not just one size fits all. There's not one person. And I think sometimes that's probably overlooked. as just, oh, it's just software development. Yeah. Just be a developer
0: and they'll build that thing for
1: us. There's Mm -hmm. multiple roles and multiple skill sets, multiple different personality types
2: along that journey to be able to get you a working um, solution. Yeah, without backing themselves into a corner. Um, and also we've, we've made a lot of learnings. So we say whenever we made a learning on a project, um, we go, where do we stuff up? What was the root cause of that? And we have an analysis and we do a retrospective on it. And then we go, right, what do we need to change with our process? So we, we mitigate that in the yep. future. So we've got that sophisticated way of working where we've been doing it for 10 years and we know, right, this is how we identify risk and we manage risk in a software development project. That's really cool. Mm. So
0: what's next for for working Mouse? And I guess after what you've done now, you've got a lot of things on the go, but as an organisation, what's next?
2: Um, So next for us um, is um, at the moment, we've just finished a big R&D round um, with the technology set and co-bots. And we're taking that technology set and the fourth generation bots were calling them to market um so we got a we got a lot of good feedback from the market when we launched the third generation bots with cobots, bots and everyone said this is fantastic i love what it can do but can i use this technology set instead of this technology set because we decided a couple of years ago as an organization that that's what we're going to do and we went no we we actually control the bots and And they went, okay, it's a deal breaker for us. So we've just figured out um, how to actually train a bot and release that as a product. So what that means is that you can train a bot on any technology stack and also any problem set as well. So it doesn't need to be just for software development. We can actually train a bot with a custom meta model to effectively create automation wherever there is a pattern in anything. So... (laughs) Okay. Taking these fourth gen bots out to market. I'm intrigued and I'm confused. Yes, <laughs> that's, and that, that's <laughs> half the problem. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> explaining it um, and people's eyes not gazing over. What's an, what's an example of a real life example of What's that an event?
1: example, and who's the customer? So is this an and you are you selling to software developers? Are
2: you selling to businesses? Are you, yeah. you selling to so yeah, uh, software developers. So yep. um, they can create their own bot. Um, so different agencies, but also people that understand and do software development on a daily basis. So they don't necessarily have to be software developers, but they have to understand it.
1: Right. So improve their workflows, improve their efficiency. It's all time-based effectively, so if you can do that task in half the time, whatever it is, then... Exactly. Right, cool. So
2: there's a a concept um, that we call Judoka, and I'm probably massively slaughtering that word because it's Japanese from the (laughs) Toyota production system. Um, And what that means is that you you build something and then you automate it, and then you have control of that automation for when it fails. Um, So that concept we're bringing to market with DevOps and these fourth-generation bots. So a use case is that there is a government customer who has a legacy system. That legacy system has over 300 integrations. Um, And each integration would take a development team approximately one iteration. So one to two weeks to do. So that's a lot of labor um, to do that. So we built a bot specifically for managing the integration from that legacy system to their, their, their data integration layer. Um, so that can get uh, – basically each integration can get built in a couple of hours and deployed.
0: In so instead of, of someone hours. actually like a developer going in building the integration 300 times, they get pay for your bot as a service and go uh, plug that in, make it work and it just learns the way that – doesn't matter what they've built it on and it goes and learns how to
2: integrate that. Is yeah, that we we was? have to train it. So we train ah, it okay. um, on the best, best practice and there is a learning algorithm in there that says, is this the right thing, is this a variable here, et cetera, et cetera, or is this static? And we go, no, this is right, this is right. And then we deploy that to the platform and that bot now has learnt that behavior, if that makes sense. And then we can reuse that again and again and again. Hmm. Makes sense. Yeah.
0: All right, thanks, Dave. Really appreciate you coming in. You've given some really good insights into if you're looking at... Um, I've got on. another question,
1: mate. I'm not done. Okay. Got to, uh, I've ahead. got to ask. So you've been doing this for so many years. What's your favorite project? Okay. That's a tough one. Okay. Um, you, can, you can do more than one if there's a tie.
2: Yeah, it's it. They, they, because they do different things, right? Yeah. Um, so the music one I was saying before, the, I absolutely love. It's pretty cool. We'll talk about that after. That's cool. Yeah, because <laughs> it kind of it, it hits so many different technology stacks and delivers a really good service. Um, but there was a product we built the better part of seven years ago, and I still love that product, and the customer didn't end up using it.
1: Oh, um,
2: oh no. and And wow. uh, I, I thought it was better than MailChimp. Okay. And Ooh. I was like, "This is awesome." It was a forms-based product, and that enabled them to basically build their own custom surveys, questions, and send it out. Um, and I was like, "This is better than Mailchimp." I <laughs> didn't use it. Was just destroyed. So what happens in that case? <laughs> so they just just dies a slow death, or yeah, that's it. Um, that's why you need a strong business case. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, the, the customer owns the IP. Yeah. So it's it's your IP. You do with it as you will. Yeah. Um, if you want to take it off and start developing it over here like that. That's absolutely. Your
0: so what did they do? do did they just buy a or something else? I don't know what they <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: Out of scopes. Mm. a that scope that bit. Yeah.
0: Anything else, Brad? Questions you had? <laughs> I'm good, mate. Apart from the music bot, which I'm sure you'll we'll talk about that. After. Yeah. Stop. We'll <laughs> yeah. Thanks, I really appreciate you've given some really good takeaways from organisations about we're looking for something to be developed, that, that um, what to look out for, some horror stories, and some of the innovation you're doing. at Working Mouse with cobots is is really cool. If anyone needs to reach you, how can they? How can they reach out?
2: Yeah, just uh, jump on the Working Mouse website, www.workingmouse.com.au, um, or reach out to me on LinkedIn. Thanks, appreciate it Cool, thanks guys Thanks Brad